Welcome to the Exit Your Business Your Way podcast with Ross Brayman, guiding business owners to the exit they deserve. Ross is a financial advisor who knows that business owners work too hard on growing and caring for their businesses not to leave it on their terms. Each week he interviews a different experienced business owner, expert, and other professionals ready to teach you effective, satisfying business exit strategies that will let you exit your business your way. Don't wait until it's too late. Start thinking exit now. Here's your host, Ross Brannan. Welcome to the show. My guest today is John Carter. John is an M&A attorney that focuses on small to mid-sized businesses. He has learned through experience that companies are mostly lifestyle businesses and aren't built to sell or transition. He determined that he could help owners much more by preparing them, their businesses, and all the stakeholders for the inevitable sale or transition. As a result, his passion today is helping business owners achieve their succession plan goals by maximizing the transferable value of the business and transitioning to their ideal successor on their terms. That's quite an intro. John, welcome to the show. (laughs) Thanks, Ross. I appreciate it. Well, let's jump right in here. You make a really interesting point that most businesses are lifestyle businesses, which is a good thing, I would argue, in many respects. It allows you to live the life you live, work how you want, make the money you want. But it's not good for selling your business. So talk about the difference between a lifestyle business and a sellable business and what the difference is and why you'd want one over the other. So a lifestyle company or a lifestyle business is one that is designed around the owner, him or herself. And they generally possess all of the knowledge, the wherewithal, and the, and the ability to run the business. And so consequently, they can make a lot of money doing what they do, but they don't have what's called business infrastructure, right? They don't have the people, the processes, the technology, the wherewithal to really build and scale their business. And so the problem is when the time comes to them to transition the company, whether they're going to give it to their kids or sell it to their employees or find an outside buyer, there's not a lot there for them to transition, right? They struggle trying to transition what's between their ears because there's no business infrastructure. So So, a situation like that, they might be, they might generate 80% of sales. Exactly. Or they might have 80% of sales coming from one vendor who they have a strategic partnership or relationship with. In some respects, you know, you could argue maybe they don't own a job. Maybe they do own a job. It's just a really good job. Exactly. Yeah, that's that's a great way of putting it is that unless you have a business that has infrastructure that can be literally sold and transitioned, which might be great, right, while you're in the business. But when the time comes for you to get out for whatever reason, that's where owners struggle. Yeah. And so you've been doing this a long time. If you see 100 companies, how many of them are lifestyle businesses? That's another great question. I would say, and the statistics show that most businesses with revenue under 30 million, which is a lot, and that comprises, by the way, I'm going to say probably more than 50% of the small businesses in this country. Companies that are that size, typically, most of them are lifestyle companies. I would say two thirds or more of them are lifestyle in nature. And they struggle selling or transitioning and getting out of the business what they truly want. Do they know their lifestyle businesses? No. That's a, the other problem. The other dirty little secret in the world we live in, Ross, is that their trusted advisors, their lawyers, their CPAs, their financial planners, and all great, talented, wonderful people. 
but none of them are really informing the owner or maybe are aware of the fact that they're advising and working with owners that really don't have sellable or transferable companies. So the business owner doesn't know what they don't know. Well, and that's that's kind of the, another dirty little secret about the industry that you and I are in. Um, even though I'm a financial advisor and you're a uh, you're an attorney, is that you know if you have a business that's got twenty million dollars of revenue, you make a million or two million dollars a year. You know your financial advisor loves you because you've got you know you're a great client. The lawyer loves you. The CPA loves you, but they're not trained like you and I are in business exit planning. And as you and I both know, everybody exits their business, you either die at your desk or you sell it. And no one really wants to die at their desk. And, you know, I, I hate to say it, but these other advisors are kind of fat and happy and they don't have to really, they've, maybe they've been lazy and maybe they just haven't had the clients to go out and learn the things that you and I have learned about helping the client recognize the value of all their life's work. Absolutely. That's well said. Yeah. I mean, it really comes down to they have the best intentions. And when we talk to them, they know what their goals are. They can describe where they want to go. The problem is nobody has counseled them or educated them on how to build that infrastructure that is going to allow them to achieve those goals. And so you literally see clients or business owners, they get to the 11th hour, I'm going to say within a year or six months of when they need to get out. And then that's when the reality strikes that, holy cow, I'm not going to get the money I need, right, that my wife and I are counting on. And wait a minute, I can't get out on the terms that I need, which means I got to go back to work for the buyer or I'm stuck with a promissory note to get paid, right? They don't get the terms that they anticipated or that they need to live the life they want. So that's when, and that's frankly, it's sad because at that point it's too late, right? It's too late. I mean, because I mean, to how many of these people are coachable on making the changes? Because I would assume a lot or not. Very rarely are they coached on this. And again, is that when I come in as a transition advisor, my goal is to work with all their other business advisors to kind of help them assemble what the plan needs to be, what the playbook needs to look like so that we can start building that infrastructure in their company based on their timeline. That's really where it goes and how it but- starts. But how open to that are they? I mean, there's a, there's a level where they're desperate, but are they willing to change? I find that most people are reluctant at first, but once they see and understand reality, right? I always tell people the data doesn't lie. It's not my personal opinion. It's what your business is validating back to us and saying based on market trends and where things are at, that's what tells them how sellable their company is. So ultimately, they draw decisions. Now, you know, we've all heard the stories and you probably have plenty yourself where the business owner is trying to exit here in the next 12 months, you know, or they have an offer that, but the offer doesn't meet their financial needs. And and they don't realize that it typically is going to take three to five years to really maximize value. How willing are clients and business owners to, to play the long game? It really depends. It's all over the board. And that's a great question because some of them are not willing, nor do they have three to five years, right? And so therefore, the work we do, the surgery we perform, so to speak, has to be much more strategic and faster. But the ideal business owner is somebody who says, you know what, I have at least two to three years from when I really need to leave the business. And so I have a little bit of runway 
And by and large, most of those people are, are relatively open-minded. I would say they're optimistically cautious. So I describe most clients that we work with, they're optimistically cautious, meaning they're optimistic about the future. They believe they can build more value, but they're cautious because they've never done this before. They've generally never hired anybody like us, right? And so it's, it's, it is a new process. So when we implement the exit planning process, we have to do it in a way that provides a lot of value on the front end and through the process. So the client feels like we're making progress. They're seeing the results. They see the value in their business. That obviously opens their mind up a lot more. Yeah. What's the average age of people who come to you for this type of help? Average age is between 55 and 65. Ideal age is 57 to 60. So when you say the ideal age, why is the ideal age 57 to 60? Why would it not be someone who's 45 to 50 was a growing business? That would be phenomenal. That's nirvana. The number of entrepreneurs that we see that are under 50 represent about 30, 35% of our clients. Again, it's nirvana. It's really getting the younger entrepreneur focused on building the business to be sold. And, and, and I think we're going to see more of those folks because this whole concept is getting more exposure. Traditionally, it's still that mid-50 to, to mid-60. And the reason I say we want them before 65 is that we know that the year when things fall off the cliff is around 66 to 67. When you say fall off the cliff, what do you mean? That's when their inherent value falls off the cliff. Because of their age? Yes. The risk factor associated with them and their connection to their business. Meaning for most people that are at that age, if they're at that level of control still in the company, chances are they have themselves in too many things in the business. They're too still connected to the business, which means it's way too risky for a buyer to come in and try to transition the company. It's very hard. It can be done. I'm not saying it can't be done, but then there's a lot more heavy lifting that has to be done. Somebody at that age, even, even, you know, I have clients in their seventies that we struggle with. It's harder for them to get out of the business. It's harder for them to implement the drivers, the value drivers that are needed to make the change. And you said harder. Is it because they're setting their ways and been doing the same thing for 40, 50 years? Yes. Primarily that's, it's a mental, emotional block for most of them. That makes a lot of sense. So what do you see as the biggest value drivers that someone can make? Yeah. So we know, we know statistically that 90% of the enterprise value in any company that's sold in the U.S., industry agnostic, really is comprised of five major value drivers. Number one, do they have good metrics, KPIs and metrics, financial and organizational? Every company that's sellable has to have a way of measuring success. That's the first driver. The second driver is having a successor management team. This is your top echelon leaders who work together, who frankly run the business better than the owner. That's such a big deal because the lifestyle business typically doesn't have a management team. Nope. They have managers in minions, but they don't really have leaders. And there's right. a difference, right? So the management team is your second driver. The third key value driver is having a documented growth plan which looks at vertical growth strategies and horizontal, meaning how do we upsell more good things to our current customer base? And then what's our plan for expanding our market elsewhere? Buyers need and love a growth strategy, especially financial buyers. The fourth key value driver that we always look at are what are the internal systems, processes, and procedures? We call them the SPPs. 
That's the internal operations of the business. And I don't care if it's a real estate company or if you manufacture medical devices, you need to have internal operating systems. Buyers what, need, pardon me? Once again, as a lifestyle business, you t- probably don't have that. Yeah. These key value drivers, Ross, very rarely rear their heads in a lifestyle company because remember, the owner is taken upon him or herself to do most of this, right? Or they orchestrate most of it. So they don't have it decentrally set up in their business through other people. Right. Right. And then the last two that we look for that are really, really important is, do they have a source of reoccurring revenue? Key value driver. Is their sales process and delivery system a way that can provide reoccurring revenue? Right. And the other thing we look at is culture. Last but not least, the most important value driver is culture. Does that organization have a strong employee-centered but performance-based culture? So those are the key five value drivers that buyers across the board, strategic and financial, look for. I would even argue to say good private equity buyers demand that. I mean, they actually come in and they'll say to the seller, hey, do you have these five things? By the way, we're going to turn your company upside down and see to what extent you have these five things, and then we'll decide what we're going to pay. So again, I always go to clients with the mindset that if we can move the needle on most three out of these five or four out of these key five drivers, we'll really massively improve the value of the company. So for our listeners, let's make sure they uh, they know the, what these terms are. Specify the difference between a financial and a strategic buyer. I mean, financial yep. buyers are typically private equity, for most companies in the United States, under 20 or 30 million in revenue, they're always generally going to sell to what's called a strategic buyer. By definition, a strategic buyer is another organization that's generally strategically placed in their industry, meaning either a customer, a competitor, a supplier. And so they will buy the assets generally from that company because they see the strategic advantage of owning that business. The good thing is generally strategic sales command a higher level of multiple in the price range. Makes perfect sense because it's more valuable to those people. Absolutely. They see the intrinsic or the synergistic value the seller provides. But however, again, if the seller hasn't done a good job of getting its house in order and having these drivers in place, then what real strategic value do they offer? It's questionable. Would you argue that those five key drivers are less important when a strategic buyer buys versus a financial buyer? I would argue that in a strategic sale, generally two or three out of the five are very important, and the other ones can be more negotiable or less important. Where if they're selling to a financial buyer, which is generally a private equity-based company, and they're only looking at the, the actual financial value of the business, i.e. future revenue, then those buyers are generally much more stringent. And they generally want to see all of those five value drivers, at least in some form. It's a private equity or a financial buyer. They're buying it like they're buying an apartment complex. It's all about the numbers. It's all if about buying, the If you're buying an apartment complex, it's all about the cap rate, which is a function of price and cash flow. It's the same thing. And so what they want to make sure is if we come in and buy this and the owner is gone, does the cash flow remain? Yes. Simple. Now, over $30 million, it's a little bit different animal though, correct? It is. And I'm using that as a loose threshold, but that's generally what we see. Companies that are north of $30 million in revenue or over $5 million in EBITDA, they tend to have 
sophisticated systems, processes, they'll have more infrastructure. And so they generally sell better. Now, they can still be terribly dysfunctional and they can still have tons of flaws, but they generally have more infrastructure. So they generally sell well. So, you know, private equity buyers tend to look for companies that are larger, more established, more sophisticated. So that's why I draw that line in the sand between 20 and 30 million is that most small businesses in this country that are well be underneath 20 or 30 million, they're going to struggle. And when they do, they generally have to find a strategic buyer that sees the value in what they have and what they do. Yeah, that's really interesting. So you've got the five main drivers. What else does someone really have to do if they want to sell? Well, I'm a big fan of measurement and metrics. I believe that, you know, kind of like the Ed, Edward Demi theory, if it doesn't get measured, it doesn't get done. And the reality is if you as a, as a business owner truly want to have a good sale, you want to have a good experience, meaning you get the money you want, you get the terms you want, you have to find a good buyer. And so one of the other things I really try to coach people on is learn about who your buyers might be. Do some research on your market. Know your market. Besides just knowing your business and your numbers, know your market. Because again, if you're under 30 million in revenue, Ross, chances are it's going to be somebody in your market that buys your business. And so the more work you can do on the front end to understand the needs of your buyers and what they're looking for, the better you can prepare yourself. Yeah, that's really, really good. That's really, really good. So have you had some uh, stories of guys who, well, I'm sure you do, some stories of guys who were unwilling to change and they left a lot of money on the table because of it? Yeah. The kinds of businesses that we run run into with the most resistance generally are family businesses. And I'm not throwing them under the bus because we love them. They're the cornerstone of this country. But when you have companies that are owned by family members or multiple members that really are not on the same page, it creates conflict and tension when the time comes to sell or when the time comes to make decisions on what, what they want to build into the business. So those tend to be the, the situations for us that are the most challenging. Now, can they not just sell it to the next generation? Uh, obviously, it's easier said than done, but is that an option? It's always an option. What are known as intergenerational transfers or sale inside the family is always an option. But candidly, it's generally a tougher climb than people expect to be able to monetize the value the owner needs and get it the way they want it by selling it to their children. Why? Because most of the time, the kids, like the employees, don't have millions of dollars laying around to buy mom and dad out, nor do they want to, frankly. Yeah, I mean, you're probably typically not getting your highest and best price selling to your kids in, in that situation. Now, do you ever see a situation where, you know, an ESOP makes sense or is a good solution for, for a business? ESOPs have made a great comeback in the last five to 10 years. I'm really bullish now on ESOPs. I was kind of a non-ESOP guy as a lawyer, but as an advisor, I think when the stars are aligned right, which means you have a large enough organization that has good cash flow, relatively low debt, and a very strong management team that successor management team, then an ESOP is a good place to start. It's a good option because it's got great tax advantages, obviously, for the seller. And another reason I like the ESOP, like other key employee buy-ins, is that the owner can literally manage the transition process in terms of the timeline, the amount of equity that they sell, 
and to some extent the value that they're going to get in return. Yeah, it's definitely a niche strategy, but it seems like it works really, really well when, like you said, the stars align. So if someone's listening to this podcast and they're like, you know, maybe I never thought about selling or, or you know, maybe I need to think, I never thought about my exit or maybe I need to actually think about an exit. What's the first thing somebody should do? I start all of the conversations with people around what I call the UGOs, the universal goals and objectives. I think every business owner needs to ask themselves three key questions, which are number one, what is their financial expectation from the business? Meaning how much money do they think they're going to need from the company to live the life that they want? And that's not an easy thing to answer Ross necessarily, but that's the first thing people need to start thinking about or speaking to the advisors about is what is the monetary value that they need from the business, regardless of what their other goals are. The second key thing that they have to ask themselves is how much longer can I stay in or do I want to stay in, in this business the way I am? What's my timeline, right? And then lastly, they need to start considering who their successors could be, who they might be. Right. If they have children that work in the business, they need to explore that option. If they have good, strong key employees who might want to own it, they need to explore that option. And if those are not possible, then, as I said before, they need to learn about who their other buyers might be, who their other successors could be. So I always every coffee conversation or every initial conversation starts with those three key questions. And if people can start to think about those and talk to their advisors about those, they'll be way ahead of most other owners. That's really good. Now, now, John, if someone wants to talk to you about selling their business, how would they get in touch with you? Yeah, absolutely. We have a website. We have an online app that people can download and they can send us their basic information. They can take what we have. It's called a sellability survey. We created a fun initial survey recently for, for business owners just to kind of find out how sellable their company is. So there's multiple ways people can connect with us. We're on LinkedIn. And what's your website? What's your website? Yeah, our website is uh, www.absolutesuccession.com. Yeah, that's great. I mean, John's a really sharp guy. If you have any interest or questions about selling a business, he's a guy. So it's John Carter on LinkedIn. Yeah, John uh, Carter, and, and we have Absolute Succession has a LinkedIn profile. Either way, you can you can reach us. Okay, and then AbsoluteSuccession.com, you can download that uh, that thing you were just talking about right there. The sellability survey, yep. Sellability survey, okay, perfect. Well, John, this has been an enlightening conversation. You know, I always learn something every time I talk to somebody. I really appreciate your time today. Well, I appreciate it being on, Ross. It's a, it's a great subject, and I hope it gets more attention. Oh, I'm sure it will. You've been listening to the Exit Your Business Your Way podcast with Ross Brannon. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Guest speakers and their firms are not affiliated with or endorsed by Paz, Guardian, or North Florida Financial, and opinions stated are their own. External sites and materials are provided for your convenience in locating related information services. Guardian, its subsidiaries, agents, and employees expressly disclaim any responsibility for and do not maintain control, recommend, or endorse third-party sites, organizations, products, or services, and make no representation as to the completeness, suitability, or quality thereof. Ross is a registered representative and financial advisor of Park Avenue Securities, LLC. 
Pass, OSJ, 3664 Coolidge Court, Tallahassee, Florida, 32311, 850-562-9075. Security products and advisory services offered through Paz. Member FINRA, SIPC, financial representative of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, Guardian, New York, New York. PAS is a wholly owned subsidiary of Guardian. North Florida Financial is not an affiliate or subsidiary of PAS or Guardian. Arkansas Insurance License Number 16139032. California Insurance License Number 0L10073. 2022-147261 expires 1124.